If you'll read along on your handout as I read aloud for us, Matthew 6, 1 through 6, and then 16 through 18. This is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray for the sermon together. Almighty God, we pray that you would give me good words of truth that come from you to bless us. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive that truth and even to live it to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start with this question. So are we a bunch of hypocrites in what we just did in corporate prayer? Did I lead you into hypocrisy where we directly going against what Jesus said? Because he said, don't stand in the synagogues and pray. No, we're fine. We were seated. I was standing for part of it. Okay. I'm not in a, we're not in a synagogue either. We're fine. But you see the point, okay? It does say go into your room and pray. So should we pray publicly? All right, let's dive into our passage. First thing I want to note, verse 1, I don't like the translation piety. It should be righteousness. The word in Greek is dikaiosune. Interestingly, the same word in Greek is translated in English as righteousness and justice. And the same root is where you get things like justifying and justification. Maybe that's why some English translations do piety, because we're not seemingly talking about God's justifying and justification here. But I still think we're talking about righteousness and justice. It's, it's about how we live our lives as Christians. How do we walk in God's ways? How do we do what Jesus did? How do we try to live justly and rightly in the way that pleases God? That's what this is about. There are three examples of how we do that. Look at the outline I put on your handout. This is really cool. Double underline, I should have explained with a footnote or something. Double underline are words that are repeated verbatim in all three examples. 
Words that are repeated exactly. Not paraphrased, but exactly. What you see when you put it down like this is you see a really clear pattern emerging. And you see emphasis. And you see what Jesus is communicating very effectively through threefold repetition. So what is that? What's he saying with these three examples, with this outline, with this teaching? I put it down on your handout. I've called it, here's the pattern. Here's the pattern you see from the outline. He starts with, in each case, in each of the examples, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, he starts with, don't do something. Don't do what the hypocrites do. What they do, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, is something public in order to be seen or praised. Don't do that because they've received their reward. That's the first part. That's the negative part in all three examples. Instead, here's the positive teaching, the contrast. Here's what Jesus tells us to do. Do do some godly practice, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Do some godly practice for your Father who is in secret. And your Father in secret will reward you. And in secret, in all three examples, is repeated twice. So it appears six times in our little teaching of several verses. Side note. This might confuse you. It confused me a bit. Hypocrites. How are they being hypocritical? Not clear. Hypocrites might mean what we usually mean by that word, right? Someone says something, but then they do something different whether intentionally or not. It might mean that, but it might have another meaning or two. Hypocrite was the word used in classical Greek for actors in the theater. So it might mean people that are acting publicly, like actors, something like that. Or it might just mean godless people. It seems to be used that way in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Anyway, if you're confused about that, that's a side point. Okay, so what comes out of this pattern? Straightforward, right? But it's not, because we started with the question we started with. So, wait, so we don't do prayer publicly? We might be okay. We, we don't give alms publicly, all right? Although we kind of sort of do. We don't, you know, say how much we're giving and whatever. We, we don't do fasting publicly, maybe. Okay. But is, is it just talking about public versus private? First thing I want to say is I really don't think that it's telling us not to pray publicly. Okay. I think we're good. We're real good in corporate prayer that we just did. And I've listed two, could have listed others, two examples on your handout where it's pretty clear, seems, early Christians, those that knew Jesus on earth in the flesh, they were praying together, okay? Not just in their own private rooms by themselves. You get this in Acts. So we've got to use that to help interpret what's going on in our passage. So it probably does not just mean public Private. There's probably something else or something more going on. 
Now, there may be, there may be some public private idea here. There is evidence. I thought this was interesting in my research this week. There is evidence from ancient rabbinic texts that sometimes when someone gave a very large donation in the synagogue as a reward, they got to come forward and sit on the same seat as the rabbi. That's a sort of public display of almsgiving that this passage would probably call into question. I think this is interesting too. Martin Luther King Jr.'s father, Mike, was a Baptist minister. One thing that he did when he assumed the helm at Ebenezer Baptist Church is he declared that all giving was to be recorded in a ledger that was publicly available for anyone to see and anonymous giving would not be allowed. Well, it might have been allowed, but it wasn't, it wasn't allowed to go in the ledger. Okay, you didn't get credit for it. Now, I, I, I don't feel comfortable sort of giving sermons where I, I stand in judgment on the practices of other pastors, but I would say at the very least that our passage would, I think, have to be seriously reckoned with and wrestled with in the instance of practices like that. Okay, so there are practices in the history of Christianity that this would apply to, probably, or that you'd have to wrestle with. There is a public-private thing, but I think there's a lot more. I think there's a lot more for us. Notice the purpose or intention words here. Why are the people doing it publicly? So that. So that. For they want to. So you see this three times in each example. Don't sound a trumpet like the hypocrites. They do that so that they may be praised by others. There's a purpose. There's a heart to it. There's an intention. Don't pray in public places like the hypocrites so that they may be seen by others. Don't disfigure your face in fasting like the hypocrites. They do this for... They want to show others they are fasting, okay? So this is important if we're going to interpret this well. It is for this reason that the primary way that people trying to understand this and reckon with this have said that at its core, what Jesus is teaching is about having the right intention when you take actions. Don't do things for the wrong reasons. I think that's right, but incomplete. I think there's more to it than that. Yes. Yes, of course. We shouldn't just do things to receive praise from other people. Look how righteous I am. Yeah, that doesn't seem to be something that God wants us to do. Yeah, sure, it's intention. But here's the something more. The thing that I stumble over is this little phrase that we said appears six times. Your father who is in secret. God's in secret? But God was God of the world, creator, the one we pray to because he can do mighty powerful things in the world. What does it mean that God is in secret? Seems strange to me. And I think it's our clue to get much more out of this teaching. So, I, I put it this way. 
God is in secret, but he's not just in secret, right? He speaks with what? Winds and earthquakes. God speaks audibly sometimes. Bible study this past week, we noted in Matthew 17, 5, transfiguration, God speaks audibly and says, this is my son, the beloved, with him I am well pleased, listen to him. And how did the disciples respond to God speaking in that way? They are terrified, as they should be. You get another glimpse of this in John chapter 12, when God says, I have glorified it, talking about his own name, and I will glorify it again, and he says it audibly. And what do the crowds think it is? Thunder or angels. So God is not just in secret. God speaks in all those ways. God speaks through other people. God speaks through events in our lives. God speaks through scripture. But God is in secret, too. God does speak through what? A still, small voice. David will appreciate this. I had to quote the King James for that. NRSV has gone away from still, small voice. Breaks my heart. I love still, small voice. This is who? Elijah. Elijah, and I've listed it on your handout. 1 Kings 19.12. God does speak at times in a still, small voice. Here is what I think the significance of that is. That God speaks in a still, small voice at times. That God is in part, sometimes, in secret. I think the significance of that is that we were made to want God. Let me explain. First Chronicles 16.11 from the Old Testament on your handout says this. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. We sang about that today. Your presence, Lord. Isaiah 55.6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. I think this is in the vein of still small voice. I think this is in the vein of God in secret. It's, are you going to seek God's presence in your life, in the whole of your life, when you're in public, when you're in private, when you're by yourself, when it's just you, when no one will know it? Do you want to seek God's presence? We are called to do that. Why? Because that's how we were made. That's what we were made for. This quotation from Mere Christianity on your handout, I have always loved. C.S. Lewis writes, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol. Translation, gasoline for you, non-British. And it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel 
our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. The Westminster Shorter Catechism also puts this reality beautifully. And I've quoted this on your handout as well. First question in that shorter catechism in the Reformed tradition says this. What is the chief end of man? That's a big question. It's a fundamental existential question. What's the chief end that we were created for, that we're supposed to, what's our goal, what's our purpose? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I love that. To enjoy God is why we were created. Psalm 1611, also on your handout, says, You show me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What I want to say today, with fear and trepidation, but with confidence, is that when we talk in this way, we are very near, if not at, the heart of our faith. Jesus puts it this way. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. If you come to God, here's my paraphrase. If you come to God because of what God can do for you, he can give me this, he can make me happy. He can set my feet on, he can give me security. These are good things, don't get me wrong. But if that is why you're coming to God, you're missing the whole point of your life. You come to God for God. I think that's what Jesus is saying there. I like to put it this way. I, I, I sort of thought about this, I guess, in the last year or two. And it just struck me as profoundly right, and I've said it many times since then. I tend to sound like a broken record. Eternal life, eternal life is not about living forever. We should not, in the abstract, without more, want to just exist indefinitely. Eternal life is not living forever. What is eternal life? Living forever with God, in his presence, with communion and fellowship and love with his presence, as we sing about today. That is eternal life. Now, something I really feel like I need to acknowledge, hard truth. Sounds like Christianity 101, right? And it is, sort of. But let's be honest with ourselves. I can guarantee you there are many people in here who need to hear this and be reminded of it. I know I have at many, many points in my life. Dry seasons when you kind of operate on autopilot. You forget. You just kind of go. You don't seek the Lord's presence. You don't delight in the Lord. I mean, you do what? Kind of, sort of, sometimes on Sundays, your heart is stirred with melodies. But we need to be constantly reminded 
that this is what our calling is. This is what we were created for. And we have to be exhorted when we forget, when we go our own way. This is what our faith is. I put as your next heading, God wants you. The reason I had to put that, I've talked about how we were made to have God as our fuel, to want God, to find joy in his presence, to find life in him. That's what we were made for. But here's the, the flip side of it, to me, is even more remarkable. God wants us. So we talk about the gospel, right? The good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is what we were saved from sin and death by Jesus, his blood shed on the cross, and in his resurrection and the power of his resurrection life, we can enjoy life with him forevermore. That is amazing. That is good news. But I think it kind of stops short. See, the good news is, is not that God saved us so that we could live forever somewhere without sin and death. The key word there being somewhere. We're not hoping to live in a mansion. Well, we are. Talks about in John's gospel. What mansion is that? What house is that? My father's house has many rooms. The hope throughout the New Testament, we did this so much with Revelation. The hope is for God's presence forever. The hope is that he will wipe away every tear. The hope is that he himself will be our light, that we don't need the sun or the moon anymore. But I think what, what the implication of this is, I think this has to be right. That means that God actually, for some strange reason we will never fathom, wants to be with us, wants to delight in us, I think of it this way, and I've said this before in sermons, and I just, I can't stop marveling at this. Here's what resurrection means. The fact that God doesn't start over, but that he resurrects us at the end, the last judgment, means that apparently he knew what he was doing when he created us. He created us with an image in his mind. This is who I want. And resurrection means he wants to take all the ways that we messed that up and redeem it and glorify it and make us the best possible version of ourselves, which is what he had in his mind when he created us. He's not starting over. He wants to redeem what he created, which means he must delight in what he created. That God wants us is just an amazing part of the gospel that we don't talk about enough. Final point before we end with a challenge. It's not about emotion. It's not about emotion. That's not what I'm preaching today. I've always hated the happiness gospel or happiness evangelism. And I've known many godly, well-meaning people that have sadly, in my view, succumbed to preaching that, to evangelizing that. Come to Jesus because at some level you are fundamentally unhappy and you're not knowing Jesus, and if you come to Jesus, you'll be happy. I don't think that's the gospel. 
We come to Jesus because in Jesus there is truth about the world and about ourselves and about our destiny, about why all this was created. There's truth and there is life. Whether we feel it or not, whether we can fully appreciate that or not, see, we can't fully appreciate it. It's not about our perception of it. And so I love, I've put this down for encouragement. This is a way to, so if it's not about emotion, but it is about emotion, but it, here's what John Wesley says, which is encouragement to me. You heard this expression, famous expression from when he was converted. He said, I put it down in your hand, and I won't read the whole thing, but the famous expression is, when he came to Christ, he felt his heart strangely warmed. I love that because I think what he's trying to do is describe something that's not quite emotional. It's deeper than that. That's why it's strange to him. And if you think that's a bad reading, let me read you another quote, which, sadly, confession, I didn't have room to put on the handout or it would have bumped it into a whole other dimension. <laughs> so you'll just have to listen carefully. We record the sermons. Okay. This is what Wesley said. And it was, it, I think, I think it was in the days that followed or shortly after his conversion. And he felt his heart strangely warmed. And then the enemy levels an accusation at him. This is what Wesley writes. These are his words. But it was not long before the enemy suggested, this cannot be faith, for where is thy joy? That's what the enemy said to him. Felt his heart strangely warmed, and the enemy said, I don't see, I don't see the emotions that should accompany this. You don't have joy. Wesley writes, Then I was taught that peace and victory over sin are essential to faith in the captain of our salvation, but that as to the transports of joy that usually attend the beginning of it, especially in those who have mourned deeply, God sometimes giveth sometimes withholdeth them according to the counsels of his own will. What he realized is joy is a wonderful thing, and God gives us joy a lot, but that's not what it's about. The absence of joy does not mean the absence of faith. The absence of emotion does not mean we can't still and shouldn't still seek God in secret. Here's the challenge I want to end with. If this sermon is about God in secret, you and God, no one else, no one knows about these things. You're not doing them for show. You're not necessarily broadcasting the ways that God met you. If this is about you seeking God's presence as the heart of our faith, because he delights in you and you are called to delight in him. If God in secret is about that, is there anything in your life where you do, at a level deeper than emotion, in a strange way, feel connected to God? It can be different things for different people. Is there something that you do? Is it prayer? 
Is it almsgiving? Is it service? Is it fasting? How do you seek out fellowship and presence with God? I have one thing, maybe others, but I have one thing that clearly comes to my mind where, honestly, the phrase, my heart was strangely warmed, is incredibly accurate for how I experience that connection with God in this practice. I actually feel a sensation of warmth. You know what that thing is? I am not going to tell you. (laughs) That is my challenge for you. Something that you learn early on if you get married is there are certain things that should just exist between you and your spouse. And I'm convinced that one way that we can really grow in our faith is if we have one thing that is just for that intimate spousal relationship between us and God. So don't tell your one thing. (laughs) 